Hello and welcome back to another episode of Agents Represent. My name is Daniel and it has been you know, quite some time since we put out a discussion-based episode like this. Before we get into it, I want to make a couple of announcements. The first announcement is that Dungeons and Asians, our D&D actual play, is going on hiatus while all of us are kind of separated due to this COVID-19 quarantine. We find that, you know, we're our best when we're playing together in the same space at the same table. And so in order to preserve the quality of the show that everybody has gotten used to, uh, we're going to put that on hold. That being said, there are already seven episodes of that series, so If you are a little bit behind, you've got some time to catch up. My second announcement actually relates to this first one. Uh, If you are craving D&D content from us, we are actually making a lot more. It's just not Dungeons and Asians. Every Friday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern, Steve and I uh, live stream on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv backslash AZNSrep. Steve and I are doing a live read-through of the AD&D Oriental Adventures Handbook. We are less than 30 pages into it after three two-hour sessions. It's, it's been rough. It's been rough. But the community has really come out and has joined us in this collective suffering and learning. Uh, we are going to be joined by guests for a lot of the future streams. So, you know, come on out and... You know, join Steve and I as we read some real old school D and D content. Now, if you've missed, you know, any of our Asians read Oriental Adventure streams, or you weren't able to make it to our uh, Representacon virtual con back back in March, we now have a YouTube channel, and that is our third announcement. If you head to youtube.com backslash AZNSrepresent, you could access all of our video-on-demand content. So anything that we've streamed on Twitch or any of our Representacon content will be uploaded to that channel. Um, We're just sitting at over 100 subscribers, and it's been, I think, like two weeks. So, you know, help us out. Help our channel grow uh, as we're going to be engaging with that a lot more during this time away from our gaming tables. My guest today is Marianne Ubaldi. Marianne is a scholar originally from the Philippines, now working on her PhD at Hokkaido University in Sapporo. Marianne works in the field of museum studies and right now is working at the Nibutani Ainu Culture Museum, uh, focusing on the representation and participation of Ainu people in museum exhibitions. For this episode, we talked about you know Ainu and Japanese identity. We discussed the deep-rooted discrimination and historical amnesia against Ainu culture, as well as how games unconsciously portray a single Japanese cultural identity. This is actually the first episode of Asians Represent where we've interviewed somebody who actually isn't a tabletop gamer. Marianne had very little experience with any tabletop games, and halfway through the recording, my internet died. And during that time, Marianne had the opportunity to actually look at, you know, L5R for the first time. And I got her, you know, when we returned, I got her genuine reaction to the world of L5R. And it was exactly as you'd expect. Now, that being said, uh, let's get into this amazing interview. And please give it up for Marianne. But one of the things that I've noticed in tabletop gaming, so like tabletop role-playing games, Mm -hmm. um, board games, and even to like a lesser extent video games, Mm -hmm. is that depictions of Japan Uh are 
very different from what Japan actually is. I think there's this very interesting idea within the gaming world of what Japan looks like, or what a Japanese person looks like, or what you know an indigenous person of Japan looks like. I, I I know that you know when people think about Japan or they look at Japan in games, they think about like you know samurai or ninja yeah. and things that you see in pop culture all the time. Yes, that's but correct. but people don't think about you know the different ethnic minorities in Japan because mm-hmm. they're very scarcely depicted in pop culture. And if they are, they might be stereotypes or, mm-hmm. you know, they, oh, they might not just exist in general. I found this um, speech that mm-hmm. a former prime minister of Japan said. So uh, Nakasone Yasuhiro. In, yes. Yeah. He's yeah, so- I mean, he's, Infamous. Very, very infamous. Exactly. He in 1986, he basically claimed mm-hmm. that for at least 2,000 years, mm-hmm. Japan has been a homogeneous nation without ethnic minority groups. Yeah, that's true. Um, um, actually, like when I was um, doing some research about Ainuride and I interviewed some people, that statement still comes out until now. Because, um, you know, Japanese people, well, they have an idea. Um, they have this theory. I'm not sure if you've heard about it. Nihon Jinron. So Nihon no. Jinron just basically says that um, if you have the Japanese blood, especially if you are pure Japanese, so that means you're not a mix, you're not half. That's the only way that you could participate in this, you know, Japanese cultural game. So that means... Even if you've stayed in Japan for the longest time and you understand their culture somehow, if you don't have a Japanese blood, you're basically not Japanese. And you can't really participate fully into the Japanese culture. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. um, And they said that theory, although, you know, many scholars have already disputed it, um, that's one of the bases why the emperor system still exists right now. And it only strengthens the image of Japan as a homogenous nation. Yeah. So I, I kind of want to take one step back, talking <laughs> about this idea of Japan as a so, homogenous nation. Mm-hmm. What, what does, in the context of that, what does it mean to be ethnically Japanese? I say with air quotes. Like, what does that mean? Is that, does that involve like the Yamato people? Is that, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, actually, that's very interesting because um, many scholars are arguing that, you know, when especially like when we talk about Ainu people, there are studies clearly saying that Ainu are descended from the Jomon. So Japanese people would trace up to the Jomon, right, when they trace about Japanese history. But mm-hmm. because they're basically from the northern part of Japan, mainly because um, other scholars are also saying that um, it's possible that Ainu people are also originally from the south. And because they were pushed by the, you know, invading force or the growing force of the Yamato Japanese line. So they became, you know, they settled in the north. But then um, the thing with that is when Japanese scholars trace the Japanese history, 
They tend to trace back to Jomon period, but then they skip the Aino and then go straight to like, you know, you have the Kofun period also, right? And the, then... Yeah, Yoi and right? Kofun, yeah. Yeah, and then they go to Yamato. But it's just they basically skip. What about the Ainu? Because they're, they're like a fusion of two cultures from the north, so the Okhots. So you also have their now parts of Russia, right? Mm-hmm. And so they're saying that basically Ainu culture is a merge of those two cultures. So the main Japanese culture and also the northern culture. So that's why when they also classify Ainu, they also um, tend to group them in the northern people. So right. that's what they say. Like, it's interesting why Japanese people tend to, you know, skip the Ainu because that's the basis of their, one of the, one of the basis of their discrimination also is that we are being neglected into the imagining of who are Japanese people. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you hit a, a key thing there and that's <laughs> discrimination. <laughs> the, yeah. Like the discrimination of the Ainu is so profound in Japan. I mean, it's it's very similar to the you know discrimination against the indigenous peoples of North mm-hmm. America to the point yeah. where it's it's very systematic. It's very ingrained within government and society. Mm-hmm, yeah, and um, actually, um, I'm not sure. Maybe you know already that you know for the longest time, right? Japan has been denying the existence of other ethnic minority groups. Yeah, and only in 2008. When the Japanese parliament officially recognized the Ainu as an indigenous group of Japan. And Wait, 2008? Was, yes, yes, it was only in 2008. And wow. it, that was the official statement of the government. Like, they're formally accepting that, yes, we have an indigenous group called the Ainu. But it was not only until last year, 2019, when they actually passed a law to make it legal to say that Aino is indeed Japan's indigenous group. So imagine it's almost, what? you know, 11 years. <laughs> wow. That, yes. That's like, I mean, there's, that means that they're only very, well, I'm sorry, that, that threw me off. I didn't know it was that bad. I knew it was terrible, but I didn't know it was that uh, bad. Yeah. That's basically the Japanese government sort of acknowledging this sort of historical amnesia, this cultural erasure that, yeah. you know they've engaged in that's true so and well a lot of um Ainu critics as well and some activists would say that um one of the factors actually for the recognition is the pressure coming from the international community because um before um 2008 so in 2007 i think they had a g8 summit here in hokkaido and during that time, you know, um, some of the people I know and also Japanese are sympathetic to the Ainu cause. Um, they also joined the Ainu people to, you know, ha- held a demonstration and call for the international support that they'd be recognized as an indigenous group of Japan. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. it's basically wow. like an international community pressure on the Japanese government. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Based on you know my experiences as an archaeologist working with Japanese material and you know studying Japan very closely, um, and you know of course working with you know scholars that you know you and I were talking about before we started recording like Junko Habu and mm-hmm, Simon yeah. Kainer, Gary Crawford, um, it was you know one of the things that I learned about you know mm-hmm. Japan and how it perceives itself in a nation as a nation 
you know, a, a lot of that is deeply rooted in, you know, post-World War II Japan and yeah. post-World War II national identity and how they wanted to be perceived as, so, you know, mm-hmm. something strong. Yeah, that's true. And well, some people are actually said like Japanese scholars, um, especially foreign Japanese scholars, um, they're saying that um, actually the kind of image that Japan is trying to, you know, project to the world is basically, it's like the Meiji period, the, well, the Edo period, actually. So the, the Edo period image of Japan so and that's the reason why until now especially like when you watch anime as well right basically Mm -hmm. the image of Japan is that from that period it's not the current Japan but from that period basically like people tend to romanticize it a lot yeah I I, when I think of Japanese pop culture I can only think of maybe I can think of three examples of mm-hmm. the Ainu being represented in Japanese pop culture. The okay. first one goes r- really far back. And mm-hmm. it was the first time I had ever been exposed to Ainu culture without really understanding what it was. Mm-hmm. And that was from a manga called Shaman King. Oh, yeah. Someone and, mentioned that to me. <laughs> I haven't yeah, read the manga, though, yeah. It's awesome. Um, okay. One of the main characters, Horohoro, is Ainu. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, I mean, most recently there is Golden Kamoi, yes, where one definitely. of the main characters is Ainu. Mm-hmm. A sheer um, right? Yeah. And then there's, uh, a great manga called Silver Spoon. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. I haven't heard it when it's all okay. Oh, so okay. Spoon. So I get to teach, I get to tell you something cool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Um, Silver Spoon is written and illustrated by Hiromu Arakawa, who mm. was is very well known for Full Metal Alchemist. Yeah. And yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, most people know who that is. And she actually grew up on a dairy farm in Hokkaido. And um, oh, okay, that may explain it. <laughs> yeah. So the the series is about a a boy, like a teenager from Sapporo who mm-hmm. moves like from a big city, fails his high school entry exam on purpose mm-hmm. so that he can go to an agricultural high school and learn about farming in Hokkaido. It's so mm-hmm. good. And yeah. there's actually a story arc where they learn about the Ainu. Wow. Yeah, actually, yeah, I'm, I wanted to mention a little bit about Golden Cow because um, when I was in Nibutani last year, right? So... Mm-hmm. Um, part of my job also is, especially when there are foreign visitors, like I could show them around and explain to them about the museum. But I also get to talk about um, other things. So I noticed that there are so many visitors last year who, who visited um, Nibutani because um, they heard about Ainu people, some of them for the first time, when they were watching or reading Golden Kamui. No way. Yeah, so um, so I was talking with um, some of the museum staff. I was like telling them, um, you know what? Like I've noticed that um, there are people who came here because of Golden Kamui. And then they were saying, yeah, I mean, they were saying, well, the image of Ainu people in that is very stereotyped. But they yeah. said the good thing is um, it put more exposure to, you know, who Ainu people are. So, because... Um, 
some of my Japanese friends also, I asked them about how they came to know about Ainu people. And um, most of them who are not originally from Hokkaido, from other prefectures of Japan, they would say that um, the first time that they heard about Ainu people was during their primary school or mostly in high school, if you're outside from outside Hokkaido. Mm-hmm. And what they learned from school is based on the book depiction of who Ainu people are. They are hunter and gatherer people. Yes. And even in the modern period, they would think that they are still, you know, engaged in those kinds of, um, like, livelihood. Yeah. And then, so I asked them, okay, and then what else do you know about Ainu people? So some of them would say, well, pretty much that's that's the only thing they know about Ainu people. And then the next time would be when they go to school here in Hokkaido. So for other people who has never been to Hokkaido, some of them would basically know Ainu people by name and they don't have any other information about Ainu people. Yeah. I, yeah. You, you know what? That's right. You, when I think of Golden Kamui, I think of that, you know, hunter gatherer depiction of the Ainu. When I think of, you know, Shaman King and that character, Horohoro, in, mm-hmm. he's, he's all associated, you know, with bears because bears are very important in Ainu culture. Um, and, but he's very, he's very much depicted as a character who is like a country, like who, I, I think in North America, you'd say like a country kid uh, is how, yeah. That, and that's kind of, um, that's kind of interesting because, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I never thought about that way. I've always, you know, thought about how there is this, you know, systemic historical discrimination against the Ainu that still yeah. persists to this day. I think about, you know, how they've been forced to abandon their traditional ways of life using their language. Uh, I, I think about the uh, the tattoos that mm-hmm, yeah. women used to get. I don't think they get them now, right? Yeah, uh, well, there is quite a revival. Maybe you can say it as a revival. Like some, especially young Ainu artists who are, you know, trying to get in touch with their Ainu heritage somehow. So, um, well, I could name some of few Ainu artists. Uh, have you heard of uh, Mario Rio? No. So they're they're like an all Ainu female band. So some of the members would actually do the lip tattooing, and I think they traveled around the world. I think last year they went to UK. So there are some members of that who would practice um, tattooing, lip tattooing. Although, wow. well, in general, well, I can say that it's not it's not widely practiced anymore, but there is quite a revival, especially among young Ainu artists. Whoa. I didn't, yeah. I didn't even know that. I'm going to have to look this up after and yeah. listen to this music. Sure, yeah. What, so, what, is, um, what is this group called again? They're on Spotify. Um, I can give you a link afterwards. Yeah, in the if email. you can send me a link afterwards, that would be awesome. No wow. Yeah. Uh, so I kind of want to like shift the conversation to you know, uh, something actionable. So I know that there are a lot of people who are very, very enthralled by the idea of, you know, um, feudal Japan, the, you know, the the Tokugawa shogunate or just the Edo period or anything like that. And people often design games. There are so many like that are coming out, um, Mm. Like I myself am going to start playing Sekiro: Shadows Die Twice soon, but that that that's again 
uh, a depiction of feudal Japan. Yeah, that's when, true. When I think about, you know, people who are going to be designing games or trying to tell mm-hmm. stories through role-playing games uh, mm-hmm. of feudal Japan, there's a very popular game in North America called mm-hmm. um, Legend of the Five Rings. I think oh. any... I think any Japanese scholar would look at it and be, would laugh. I, I, I mean, it's what I do. Um, I want to check that out. Legend, Le- of, the yeah, Legend of the Five Rings. It, it was written, it wasn't written by a Japanese person. It was designed by white dudes in the 80s. Okay. Um, it's a very stereotypical look at Japan. And mm-hmm. what they often do with it is they actually combine elements of ancient China as well, and yes. they kind of mashed them together into one. Um, yeah. But I know this, this, um, this game is really popular, and I know that you know, feudal Japan is very, a very popular setting for people. But one mm-hmm. of the things that people I've noticed will omit in their stories about feudal Japan are the Ainu. Um, yeah, A, because like you said, they don't know, and B, because maybe they don't know how they would, you know, positively represent the Ainu. Yeah, that's true. Um, that's also a problem like in museums, right? Because yeah, well, I'm studying about museums. Um, until mm. now, some of the curators are already aware of the problems in, in the depictions of Ainu, especially in exhibits. But um, they're also kind of um, in this dilemma, like, you know, how do we depict objectively the Ainu people, especially how do we um, explain to people who and how Ainu people are in the contemporary period? Because um, until now, they're saying that there is this lack of blueprint um, on who and how do you know depict Ainu people in the current period. So um, some of the curators are actually saying that they're kind of hoping that um, the Ainu Association would actually, you know, lead and give them some idea about um, how to objectively depict the Ainu people so as to correct the misgivings and biases about them. But until now, I think it's still a difficult problem, especially for museums. It was then at this point that my internet died and Marianne and I had to take a 10-minute break in the recordings for me to fix my internet. During this time, Marianne actually looked at the current edition of L5R and when we got back to the recording, gave me her you know, reaction to it. So let's get into that right now. You know, I, it's so funny. I think you're the first scholar uh, in Asia who I've ever shown Legend of the Five Rings to. Okay. And, <laughs> I, I mean, your response was exactly what I thought it would be. Um, yeah. There are, <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of people. Laugh or cry? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, there there are just and you know what? If you're looking at it right now, you're mm-hmm. looking at the latest version of it. Um, there are many many editions of Legend of the Five Rings. It's like a classic, right? In the eighties or something. Yeah, and it's 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 really bad. And <laughs> I I haven't I honestly haven't gone through it to see if they've talked about the Ainu or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I. Before my internet cut out, I wanted to ask you, you know, mm-hmm. how how people could actually represent an Ainu character in this game without falling into these, I mean, racist pitfalls. 
that you see in you know contemporary Japan and you know Japan. I, I don't even want to say post World War II Japan as long as Japan has been like Japan. That's true. Yeah. So yeah, actually, that's kind of a difficult question as well. But for me, as to how you would be able to do that, I think one good way would be. Well, to actually ask some, you know, maybe Ainu people, how would they like to be depicted in this, you know, like, for example, in gaming. But um, the problem with that also is, um, I mean, you can't blame them because for the longest time, it's like they have been denied of their traditional culture, right? So Mm -hmm. um, they also have this kind of, you know, sense of pride, maybe that, they wanted to show the other people, especially how they are unique from the majority Wajin Japanese, right? So one way to do that is, of course, to highlight um, their traditional culture, like from how different the kind of clothes they wear originally from the majority Japanese. Mm-hmm. But, well, we also have to consider that in the contemporary period, um, it's not a daily wear for them anymore. Like, for example, have you heard of um, atush, like the traditional Ainu robe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So I think that one is, you know, maybe we can say that's very popular nowadays. Like, you could see a lot of those in on displays. And I think Amanda mentioned to me about this um, one game in um, Nintendo Switch. Yeah, Animal Crossing has an atush in it. Yeah. Uh, it's like an atush, although one of uh, a Japanese, um, she's a foreigner, but a Japanese color. She was saying that it doesn't look to her as an atush anyway. <laughs> like it's quite far from an atush, but I think it's trying to, you know, be like an atush. It, it's trying. It doesn't have a lot of the, you know how they, they have the white waves and the pattern on it? Yeah, the, the, we call, they call it uh, murio. So the, the patterns, right? Mm-hmm. So the Damunio, it doesn't have, it's not as elaborate as the real Atush, but I think that's what that, um, you know, piece of cloth is trying to capture. Yeah, I, I've seen, I've seen a real one at a museum here in Toronto, at the mm-hmm. Royal Ontario Museum. They have a very, very small display mm-hmm. of the Ainu. But one oh. of the things that I noticed, actually, and I, I wonder if you can shed some light on this, mm-hmm. the Ainu display, which is, you know, absurdly small, mm-hmm. is not even in the Japan gallery. <laughs> it's yeah. So the the at the Royal Ontario Museum, the the gallery that highlights Japanese art is mm-hmm. on the first floor of the museum in the old wing, mm-hmm. and you know it covers mostly like the samurai and then some ceramics and some contemporary art. Mm-hmm. And on the third floor of a different building, which they call the Crystal, mm-hmm. in the Africa, Americas, and Asia Pacific Gallery, that's one okay. room, there's an Ainu display. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I, like- I, I, is, that, is that a common thing to separate the Ainu from Japan in museums? Yeah, actually, well, originally... Oh, well, I can say this now because um, some of the major galleries in Japan has been undergoing renewals, right? Mm-hmm. But one of the most um, common problem with um, exhibitions about Ainu people is the tendency to actually separate them from the mainstream Japanese culture exhibition. Um, yeah. 
there is this one good museum. I don't know if we have been there um, in Mimpaku in Osaka, right? No. Um, so they basically try to exhibit um, indigenous cultures all over the world, and they tend to do it by region. So right. um, in that section for East Asia, so they have the Japanese exhibition, right? But um, the Ainu exhibition is actually separated from the main Japanese exhibition. It was actually positioned um, in between the Japanese culture and the Northern people's culture. So- Like nor Northern Asia, like, like near Russia? Like when you actually say Northern people's culture, it includes Asia and also Russia. Okay. And also you also have Alaska. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's actually, it's an imaginary region when you say about Northern people. So, um, so anyway, so that's the layout, right, of the whole exhibition. So there was this one scholar from Canada. She actually critiqued the way that the museum did it that way, right? So she said that by doing that, it's like the museum is also promoting, you know, further discrimination and stereotyping of Ainu people's culture, uh, of Ainu people, because um, it's like saying that it's the other Japan, right? Right. But, well, for the museum side, they were actually explaining that the reason, the main reason why they separated it from the Japanese, main Japanese exhibition and put it in between the northern, the other northern ethnic group is that they wanted people to see the connection that Ainu people is actually, um, you know, in between the Japanese culture, while it's also part of the northern people's culture. Huh. <laughs> so, huh. <laughs> well, we kind of get that, right? But, well, as this um, scholar is, keeps pointing out, well, you know, not every museum visitor has the same knowledge about, you know, Aina people and all these um, other ethnic cultures. So she was saying, like, if we analyze it in a very simplistic way, it's like the message that that kind of exhibition tries to convey is that Ainu is not Japan. It's not part of the Japanese culture. Yeah. Right? And that, you know, Japan has a single culture. Yes, especially that. So that's what that kind of, you know, exhibition tries to promote. Like, so yeah, there are so many like critics on that. But yeah, maybe we could also understand the museum side that they wanted for the people to see the connection between, you know, Ainu people and the Northern people and the Japanese culture. Because they're like, you know, a merge of those, mainly, two, we can say, two two cultural regions, right? Uh, but which, the which two? The, the Akatsk and... Mm -hmm, yes, yeah, the part of the Russian area as well. And mm -hmm. you also have Alaska in that part. Oh, okay, and yeah. There are actually many northern people's culture in that era. So you have the Nanai as well. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> this is a, a lot more complex than we yeah, had originally depicted. Mm -hmm, yeah. So it's actually difficult to just say that, well, they're Ainu, so they should be part of Japan, right? I mean, right. there's also this um, northern region that, you know, Ainu people also belongs to, especially if we talk about the culture specifically, like um, they say that the Ainu culture is very much similar 
like you know when it comes to like, the Alaska people and then the Nanai culture like part of Russian ethnic groups because originally right before Hokkaido was officially annexed as part of Japan people mm-hmm. in the are just you know freely roaming around so they have trades with other people not only Japan so wow. that could okay, explain yeah. my, you know the similarity in culture as well wow <laughs> I think if you know the listeners were to get you know a big takeaway from this it's mm-hmm. that you know depictions of Japan are I'm not gonna say wrong but mm-hmm. they are very biased very biased, very stereotyped. Very stereotyped depictions of Japan, yeah. you know, uh, and especially of Japan's historical periods, right? Yes. And the idea that there is a single one Japanese culture. Yeah. Um, That's a myth. <laughs> it's a, exactly. It's a myth. And that Japan has had this long history of discriminating against its various indigenous groups. I mean, the Ainu aren't the only ones. Yes. You also we also have to remember there's Okinawan, the Rikyuans in the south, mm-hmm. right? And we should not also forget the Zainichi Kankokujin, the overseas Koreans. Yes. Who were born and raised in Japan. And also the Chinese. Among yes. other ethnic groups. <laughs> Yeah, and aren't there? There are also a lot of people from Brazil in Japan. Yeah, we call um, we call them the Nikajin. Actually, um, there's a big group coming from um, Brazil and also um, the Peruvian Japanese, right? Because um, yeah. they're, I think they were part of the this migrants who went out of Japan during the Meiji period when Japan was really in a bad economic state. Mm-hmm. So they went abroad. To have, you know, good jobs and then eventually with the plan of going back to Japan. But, you know, as they say, life doesn't always go the way you planned it. So eventually they settle in other parts of the country, um, in other parts of the world. But then their descendants, um, they were, they said they were born and raised, like they speak Japanese. So they have this idea of going back to Japan. So that's uh-huh. another problem, actually. Um, my master's thesis was about the Nikkeijin, although I focused on the Philippine Nikkeijin. Because um, even if they are Japanese, basically, they were born and raised as Japanese. But when they come to Japan, it's like they're not Japanese because they were from outside Japan. And that's one of the arguments that Nihon Jinron, you know, the, the concept that you have to have a Japanese blood mm-hmm. to be act like a Japanese is a theory in itself because what about the pure Japanese from abroad so they were raised differently yeah I mean for me <laughs> I uh you know I you know I was born in in Canada I'm ethnically <laughs> Chinese uh-huh, um, yeah. I'm like a child of two worlds right like when I went and lived mm-hmm. in China for a very long time I yeah. didn't really belong there you know like I don't dress like people over there. Uh-huh. Um, I have tattoos, which you know a lot of people in China and I know in Japan uh, uh-huh, yes. aren't super into. Yes. Um, but also, like, I don't fit in in North America either. The idea of this homogenous Japan, this idea of you know, I knew cultural erasure because I know that there are like their language is almost extinct as well, right? 
Yeah, they were saying that, but actually, so when I was in Nibutani, right, so I pointed that out to um, some of my Aino friends. So they're actually saying that maybe it's not correct to say extinct, but well, yeah, maybe it's true that the, you know, the the speakers are continuously declining, but they are saying that, um, well, there's been a revival. So actually, um, right now, that's maybe that's also part of the effort of the local government, especially in Hokkaido. They're actually teaching Ainu language in some schools. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Aside from that, um, there are also like this um, language groups, even for younger people and or older people, especially in communities where you have a considerable number of Ainu population. So um, actually, when I was in Nibutani for two months, um, I've been participating in this um, Ainu language group. So yeah, people are learning. It's not only open to Ainu people, but also to everyone, to Japanese and even foreigners. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's <laughs> so great. Think, yeah, there's a revival. And yeah, I think so far it's maybe doing good, I guess. That's that's awesome. That's awesome because I mean, when I was, you know, back in 2012 when I was doing my masters on the Jomong, you know, yeah. we were when I was learning about the Ainu and they were telling us that you know their language is almost gone. This is, you know, eight years later. It's great to hear that there are you know, groups that, uh, and not only just Ainu people, but groups of people from you know all over who are now trying to learn their language and help you know maintain it. That's that's wonderful, and you know, honestly, that's that makes me hopeful. That's um, true. Um, actually, I could send you a link. So I have this. Um, she's um, originally from Nibutani. Um, she has this YouTube channel where she teaches in Ainu language. So I could send you the link later if you want to check it oh, out. Oh yeah, yes, please, yes, please, and then I'll share that with the listeners of the podcast. Um, yeah, yeah. Marianne, I want to thank you for. Uh, you know, agreeing to do this interview, we, this is <laughs> no we've, we've gone through you know multiple hurdles to make this happen. We're fighting yeah. with a time zone right now. <laughs> I know, yeah, and while well, um, we have the virus as well going, oh my goodness! Oh, I know, and I hope I hope that you're safe and healthy. Yeah, I am. Uh, about you, I hope you're also doing well in your family. Yes, yeah, no, we're we're doing great. Um, I know that you aren't on social media or anything. Um, um, but, I'm actually on Facebook, <laughs> just Facebook. Oh, okay. But I, I won't, I won't tell our listeners your Facebook or anything, yeah. but, um, if people have questions for you, if people want to know more about the Ainu or how, you know, to best include them in their games, where should people go? Okay. Online? So can they contact you or is there somebody who you'd recommend? Or, well, if they want to ask about um, Ainu, well, um, they could subscribe actually to the channel in YouTube because um, Maya Sikaini, she's um, actually from Nibutani originally, but she's um, currently a college student. Okay. Yeah, like I'll, I'll, I'll put that link in there. Um, they can... Uh, try to learn how to speak the Ainu language, subscribe to that YouTube channel. Um, yeah. If people have questions, they could always direct them at me and I could always ask you as well. Um, yes, no problem. Yeah, that would be great. <laughs> yeah, okay. So if if folks are interested in, you know, 
learning more about the INU and you have questions, send them my way. Uh, send them to the Asians Represent podcast email. That's AZNS Represent uh, at OneShotPodcast.com. And I'll pass on questions, uh, you know, when we get enough of them to Marianne and hopefully you'll be able to answer them. Yeah. And um, if I can't, maybe I can try to ask some of my friends as well who <laughs> would be more yeah. knowledgeable about this. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, like you are super knowledgeable um, and this was, you know, a great learning opportunity for, for me and I can't wait for our listeners to also experience this learning opportunity. Um, Marianne, I want to thank you. Um, yeah for joining me for this uh for this hour of talking uh thank you so much and you know what i i hope to have you back on the show again if we if you want to talk even more about the i knew yeah no problem at all so well i'm just continuing with my research right now so yeah i would be i would be glad to share you know whatever i have in my research <laughs> awesome and then maybe next time we have you on the show we'll we'll call you like doctor <laughs> i hope so <laughs> <laughs> so and yeah, if you need anyone, well, I have some other few Ainu scholars who would maybe love to talk about what they're researching on as well. Because well, in yeah. my case, I'm basically more focused on the museum side, but yeah, some of my colleagues are actually focused on a larger scale. So maybe they could talk more about Ainu people as well. Yeah, let's let's definitely try to do that in the near future. We'll try to do some sort of virtual conference or something. Yeah, I think that would be really productive. <laughs> yeah. Okay, sweet. We we've done one before, and maybe the we did it through Twitch. Uh, mm -hmm. Next time, maybe we'll have to do an entire panel on, you know, the depictions of Japanese and the Ainu in pop culture or something. That's true. And yeah, one last thing yeah, before I go. Also, um, the National Ainu Museum will be opening. Actually, is it next week? Um, it's on April 24th. Yeah, it's next week, yeah, Friday. So the National Aino Museum will be opening in Shiraoi, Hokkaido, where the old Aino Museum was originally located. Right, yeah. So when, you know, coronavirus is all over and we can travel again, go to Hokkaido for this museum. Yeah, they could also check it out. Um, I think they've updated the website online. So um, I noticed that last week they also added like an English web page. So maybe if listeners are interested, they could check it out as well. Yeah, awesome. Um, send me the link for that and I'll stick yeah, it in I the show notes. A bunch of links afterwards. Yeah, send me everything. Again, Marianne, thank you so much for uh, joining me for this episode of Asians Represent. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for allowing me to share my research as well. <laughs> You're welcome. Okay. Thanks to Marianne for joining me for this episode of Asians Represent. And thank you, listener, for tuning in. Asians Represent is part of the One Shot Podcast Network. If you head to oneshotpodcast.com, you can listen to a variety of amazing podcasts like The Broadswords, an all-women actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast focusing on roleplay, narrative, and diversity at the gaming table. If you have any questions about this episode's theme, um, we didn't really discuss any games or, or anything else related to Asians Represent, get in touch with us on social media. So that's Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at AZNS Represent. Or you can catch us every Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Twitch at twitch.tv backslash AZNS Rep. If you have any questions for Marianne, uh, Marianne doesn't really use social media uh, and requested that I, you know, 
send any questions via email, uh, email me at aznsrepresent at oneshotpodcast.com. My name is Daniel, and you've just listened to Asians Represent. Asians Represent.